I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. My name is Jared. I'm the lead pastor here at City Grace, and uh, my wife picked out this shirt and ironed it for me. Um, she has better taste than I do, and if you don't like my shirt, then you can blame her. But, you know, it's, uh, I will say I did catch somebody staring at me earlier, and they were trying to, they thought it was one of those 3D pictures, but <laughs> you don't want anything to pop out of this shirt. I'm just telling you right now, so don't stare too long. Uh, you know, you don't want to get caught there, but... We're so glad that you're here for Easter. I love Easter. Um, this morning, as I was kind of preparing my thoughts for Easter, I made sure I took some time. And, you know, we, Christians in the church, like, we get really busy around Easter. We're prepping everything, getting everything ready. I made sure that I took some time and, and personal time. And I hope, if you haven't done that yet, I hope that you will do that, um, you know, at some point today. Just take some time to think about Easter and what it means um, to you and for you, maybe what it can mean. For you, but, but Easter is really the foundation of Christianity. Easter is really kind of the pivot point of following Jesus. And, and it, with Easter, everything about Christianity makes sense. And without Easter, nothing, nothing about Christianity makes sense. Christianity isn't even possible really, without Easter. And so today, I think, is a great day for you to be here. If you've, you know, maybe you used to be a Christian, or you haven't been very much of a Christian lately, or you're just not sure, I think today is a perfect day for you to be at church, and we're so glad that you're here. Um, you know, whatever struggles you've had with your faith and your ideas about God and Jesus and whatever things that you've kind of wrestled with today is a great day for you to kind of lean in and engage with the message. What we see from a lot of people is that it wasn't really their faith. Like people grow up in, in maybe Christian homes and maybe it was their grandparents' faith. Um, maybe it was your parents' faith. Maybe, maybe it was really your faith, you know, way back when, but then life kind of happened, right? You know, you got, you know, you started adulting and, and things just kind of got mixed up and, and it didn't seem like the childhood faith did very much for adult life, right? It didn't seem like it was very important or maybe you went to college, right? And, and, and in college you heard something, maybe you saw a science program and now you got some questions, you know, or maybe Christianity didn't, didn't really work like you thought it should. Can we be honest this morning since we're, you can't tell a lie in church anyway, right? So, I mean, you know, we, we do, we have questions, we have doubts and it doesn't seem, you know, some of the prayers you prayed, didn't seem like they worked. Didn't seem like they got answered. Some of the hopes you had for your life, your faith, it didn't seem like anything panned out. And I get that. Like if I were you, I'd probably be right where you are. If our roles were reversed and I was you and you were me and I came from your background and you came from my background and I've been through some of the things that you've been through. Listen, I get it. I'm not any better than you. I'm not any smarter than you. I get why so many people struggle with following Jesus. And so if, you, if church really isn't normally your thing, today's a great day for you to be here. And today I want to challenge you over the next little bit to, you know, your arms may not be crossed on the outside, but maybe you got them kind of crossed on the inside. And today I want to challenge you for the next few minutes just to uncross your arms. Just, just open up your mind to the possibility of becoming a Christian. Listen, in spite of the fact that you know some, just be open to the idea of being a Christian in spite of the fact maybe you grew up with some. Maybe you think all Christians are hypocrites or maybe you think that Christians have to ignore science or critical thinking. Just become open to being a Christian or maybe being a Christian again. Maybe you had a bad church experience. Maybe, you know, it just things didn't seem like they really worked for real life. And in spite of the questions that I can't answer this morning, because I don't think I can answer all your questions, in spite of the, the answers that you're looking for that you may never get in this life, just consider for the next little bit 
following Jesus and becoming a Christian again. Because really, Easter is the best day for you to be at church because Easter is the foundation for the Christian faith. And this is really important because we're not Christians because we found easy answers to hard questions. We're not Christians because every time we pray, we get an answer like we want it to be answered. The foundation of Christianity is not Christians themselves. The foundation of Christianity isn't even, thank goodness, the behavior of Christians. But Easter is the answer to Christianity. Easter is the reason for Christianity and why Christianity exists at all. Think about this. Now think about this. We're gathered here today to celebrate a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago. And really, he only went public for about three years. Some people say less than three years. Never traveled more than 30 miles from his home. Never wrote a book. Just walked around the desert within a 30-mile radius telling people about God, giving speeches to different people. Yet today, around the globe, this weekend around the globe, a third of the world's population, 2.5 billion people, it's estimated, will gather in places like this. And we sing songs that have similar words to them, although they may be in languages that we have never heard of. And we will raise our hands, and some of us will dedicate or rededicate our lives to a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago. On the surface, it doesn't really make sense, right? On the surface, it just seems a little unbelievable. But it's all because of Easter, the early church and the Jesus movement didn't even take off because there was a Bible. Do you know that for the first 300 years of Christianity, they didn't even have a Bible? There was no Sunday school. There were no Bible studies. Nobody gathered in, in assemblies like this and said, open up your Bibles to, to 1 Corinthians or to Ephesians or to John. And when you look at all of these things, when you look at the incredible obstacles that Christianity faces now, when, that Christianity faced then, it's just like you, you wonder how in the world did Christianity survive? How in the world did the, did, did the church not just survive, how in the world did the church thrive in all of this? How did the church and Christianity survive Nero and Rome that persecuted the Christians and, and told them, if you're going to say you're a Christian, we're going to feed you to the lions? Or Nero would take them and put them in his garden, bound up and put tar on their heads and light them on fire and listen to their screams to light his garden. How in the world did the Jesus movement survive that persecution? How in the world did it survive Judaism that thought Christianity was like this knockoff cult and so they tried their best to stamp it out? How in the world did the church survive? Especially when you consider that today a third of the world's population calls themselves Christians and there is no more Roman Empire. Two and a half billion Christians in the world and not hardly any uh, Orthodox Jews. Only rabbinical Judaism is even left. Temple Judaism was wiped out in 70 AD. There is no explanation for Easter except for what the eyewitnesses claimed that they saw on the first Easter. And that's the beautiful part about Easter 
to me. When we look at, at the history that we have for the church, the records, the archaeology, uh, uh, atheist, uh, atheist uh, historians and agnostic historians and uh, uh, archaeologists all look back at the eyewitnesses to early Christianity, and everybody who is a historian, all serious historians, all reputable historians from like Duke and Yale and Harvard and all of these places, look at the documents and look at the history that we have for the early church movement and the accounts of the eyewitnesses and all of them agree that the eyewitness accounts are reliable, that these people really believed what they said they saw, that their lives were radically changed and that they gathered together in these gatherings. And these early Christians changed the course of history, all because of a Jewish carpenter from 2,000 years ago. And it doesn't make sense unless what they saw was true. And all of their eyewitness accounts, this is another interesting fact, all of the eyewitness accounts were written within a range of 20 to 65 years after the resurrection. Now this is important because that means there was no chance for a fable or a myth or a legend to develop. There are whole disciplines of study in universities that study this thing. How do fables form? How do legends form? And what they have decided, the experts, not me, they're a lot smarter than me. What they've decided is that you need at least 80 years, maybe 100 years plus, for something to become a myth or a legend. Why? Because everybody who witnessed the actual event has to die. They have to pass away so that there can be no one to contradict the story. Yet all of the eyewitness accounts that we have have been dated to within 20 to 65 years of the resurrection, which means there were plenty of people alive who had seen a risen Jesus. There were plenty of people alive who could have contradicted the witnesses who said they did see a risen Jesus and the crucifixion didn't happen like everybody was saying, but nobody contradicted it. Nobody denied it. And the Jesus movement changed the world. And Paul, who wrote over half the New Testament, if you look in the, the newer part of your Bible called the New Testament, over half the documents that are written in that new part were written by a man named Paul. And Paul is actually maybe the most widely uh, accepted historical source, just really by everybody. Again, by skeptics, agnostics, atheists. They look at Paul, they look at Paul's writings, and all of them agree that Paul was valid. And Paul is a reliable historical source. In about 55 AD, he wrote a letter to some Jesus followers in a city called Corinth. And uh, in that, he says, listen, you guys remember when I was there a few years ago? And we actually know from history and from archaeology and some inscriptions they found and stones they found that Paul was actually there at 52 AD, three years before. Paul says, you guys remember when I was there three years ago? And I told you the account of everything that happened. I explained the gospel to you, this thing that we call the good news. There was some good news about this Jesus person, this Messiah. Paul said, uh, remember when I was there and I told you Jesus rose from the dead? I told I told you that Peter saw him. I told you that James, the brother of Jesus, saw him. I told you that I saw him and the rest of the 12 apostles saw him. And then Paul says this, and after that, Jesus, the risen Jesus, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though, though some have fallen asleep. And what Paul is saying is this, look, this is so important for you to put your trust in. This is so important for you to put your hope in that some of you may be wrestling with it because generally when people die, they stay what? 
Yeah. When people die, they usually stay dead. And Paul said, We're, our, our whole faith, our whole movement is based on the fact or, or a claim that somebody got up from the dead. So if you need to investigate this, there are more than 500 people still living. And you can interview them. And you can ask them about what they saw. There is no way that this is fable. There is no way that this is legend. There are too many eyewitnesses of which I am one. And he had told them a few verses before this. Again, he mentioned James, the brother of Jesus. Now, James is an interesting story to me. Because if you have a brother, I want to ask you, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? What would your brother have to do to convince you? What would your brother have to do to convince you that, hey, you know, when mom had me, she was still a virgin? Like, come on, you're going to raise some eyebrows at that, right? You're not going to believe. And here's what's interesting about James, the brother of Jesus. While Jesus was still alive, James didn't believe either because nobody would believe that. There's even an account one time where James and Mary, the mother of Jesus, they went to get Jesus because they're like, he's going off the rails. He's saying some things that are just, they're kind of hard to believe and, and we need to go help him out. He's been a little bit out in the sun a little bit too long. And so they went to get Jesus and they brought him back. Can you imagine, can you imagine growing up in Jesus' shadow? Can you imagine if you grew up and Jesus was your older brother? I, I know somebody said to James one time, hey, your brother turned water into wine. Can you like give me an iced tea or something? Like, You know, Mary, their mom, give them an Oreo each, right? And James has his one Oreo, and Jesus takes his one Oreo and breaks it and keeps breaking it and keeps multiplying it. Pretty soon, Jesus has 12 lunch pails full of Oreos, and James still got one. Just, they're in high school, and everybody wants Jesus on the water polo team. You know, just <laughs> think about it. Think about it. And when Jesus died... James was not a follower of Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, mourned the loss of his delusional brother. But three days later, James saw something. And James was never, ever the same after that. And James became the early leader of the, Jew, uh, of the Jesus movement. And as you read the eyewitness accounts in the, in the New Testament of the resurrection of Jesus, they feel like eyewitness accounts. Like if we were to walk outside, five of us were to walk outside, and we were to witness this accident down at the intersection, down the street, and, and you know, traffic control came, and the police came, and you know, a few different officers started interviewing the five of us. We would all be telling the same story, but we would all have different perspectives and different details that we would have, Right? Some of us would say, well, the guy that was trying to turn, he had his blinker on. And then another guy might say, no, no, I don't remember seeing a blinker on as that guy was trying to turn. And then the third person might say, well, yeah, I saw him trying to turn, and his blinker was on, and then it was off, and then it was on, and then it was off. And then it... Think about it. So we would all tell different aspects of the same thing. But listen, our differences would actually prove that something had naturally occurred. If we all said exactly the same thing, come on, you've watched detective movies before. When all the suspects say exactly the same thing, what do the cops know? 
They're lying. They're faking it, right? That's why the police separate the suspects before they interview them, as some of us know all too well. You, we would know that somebody has staged this event for the sake of insurance, for, but we don't get that. When we read the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's unpolished. It's rushing together. It's confusing at times. There are details that almost seem to contradict each other at times. There are these hidden gems that just make the story more and more believable. It doesn't read like a novel. It doesn't read like a fiction story. It reads like people actually wrote down what they saw happen on Easter morning. It's messy. Anybody ever seen those news reports that go viral? Anybody ever heard of that one? Hide your kids, hide your wife. Don't Google it now because you're in church, but you got to Google it. You got to YouTube that later. That is pure comedy. Hide your kids. Hide your, the other one is I got bronchitis. Like that might be my, fav, my favorite one right there. But you can imagine as you read some of these accounts, there's one in Mark that is just like a news account. You can imagine the, the eyewitness reporter out there, you know, find a guy. Hey, sir, can you tell us what happened on the night that they arrested Jesus? You can imagine the guy saying, yeah, I was, I was walking my dogs through the garden. And suddenly a bunch of soldiers busted into the garden and they started harassing Jesus and his friends over there. And at first they were just talking, but all of a sudden the soldiers whipped out the cuffs and slapped the cuffs on Jesus. And man, when they slapped the cuffs on Jesus, everyone deserted him. They all ran, and a young man wearing nothing but a hoodie was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment. He left wearing nothing but his Jordans. Now, why in the world would you put that in to the narrative and the story of what happened unless it actually happened? And as the eyewitnesses wrote the accounts of what happened on Easter morning, they wrote themselves into the story of the resurrection, but they did not write themselves into the story as heroes. But they ran. They abandoned Jesus. They left Jesus. They deserted him. It wasn't a legend. It actually happened. It happened. And here's the other thing about the resurrection. No followers of Jesus expected a risen Jesus. Jesus was buried by two secret followers of Jesus. Like they weren't about to put the fish sticker on the bumper of their chariot. They were secret followers. And they went and asked the Roman governor for the body of Jesus because his body was supposed to be thrown out on the trash heap. But if his body got thrown out on the trash heap, they knew somebody would come and, and steal it and mess with it. And so they, these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph, they actually take the body of Jesus and they wrap it in the, the burial cloths of that culture in that time. And they put spices all in there. And then they go and they put him in a tomb. And then we read the resurrection account just a little bit later. And some women come along on Easter morning. Some women come along with more spices for burial. Now why in the world would the women come with more spices for burial? And I think it's because they knew two men did it the first time. And they figured they had to fix it. But no, why would women come with more spices for the burial? Because they expected Jesus to still be dead. They did not write themselves into the story as believers. They wrote themselves into the story just like we might write ourselves into the story. It's kind of hard to believe that when somebody dies, they got back up. 
And in fact, Mary starts asking everyone. There was even somebody there that she thought was the gardener. And you got to read that story on your own. Somebody she thought was the gardener. She turned and said, just tell me where they've taken him. I won't even report you guys. I won't even tell on you guys. Just tell me where he is so that I can take care of his body. She didn't believe in an empty tomb. Nobody expected this. Nobody expected what Jesus had said would happen. And that meant if Jesus was dead, that meant that Jesus couldn't have been who he said he was. Because you can't kill the author of life. You shouldn't be able to kill someone who claimed to be the resurrection and the life. These were Jewish people. And they believed in a Jewish Messiah. And they thought that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But as far as they could tell from their scriptures, Messiah shouldn't be able to lose. There's no way it could be the son of God. Why in the world would God allow this to happen to his son? So he couldn't be the son of God. And all through the accounts, we see them crying, weeping, grieving, hiding, depressed. Because nobody believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. When Jesus died on the cross, the Jesus movement died with him. There were no Christians at the cross. There were no Christians when Jesus died because their faith was inextricably tied to a person. Their faith and their hope was not in a good set of moral teachings. Their faith and their hope was not in a philosophy. They did not follow Jesus because he said cool things and did magic tricks. Their faith was in who Jesus said he was. But when things got, went sideways and when Jesus got himself arrested, they unplugged. They unfollowed. They said, we didn't sign up for this. This is, we, we had a very specific idea of how things were supposed to go if we would follow you. And this doesn't look like it. And so we unfollow Jesus. And for three days, there was no Christianity. For three days, there was no Jesus movement. One disciple said it like this. We had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped. He was our hope. We, had, we thought he was going to work everything out. But after what we have just experienced and after what we've just lived through, we had hoped. But now that things seem impossible, come on this morning, now that Jesus has disappointed our expectations of what it looks like to follow him, we're not sure that we can hope again. See, and if we're honest this morning, I think this is the point that we most relate to the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. I think I can see myself as one of those kinds of people. I think I would be skeptical. We make fun in Christian circles a lot about this guy named, we've even given him a nickname. We call him Doubting Thomas. I think I'd be Doubting Jared. I'd be right there with Thomas, or the doubting duet. That's where I would be too. I don't think, uh, you know, look, I like to think. I, I have a brain. Just in case some of y'all were wondering. I wish my wife was in here right now. But I would be doubting too. And I know I would because I know that I have doubted in this life. I know that I have had expectations about God and about Christianity and about church and, and prayer. And those things haven't turned out like I thought. And when things don't turn out like I think that God should make things turn out, guess what I do? I doubt. And maybe you doubt too. Turn around and ask somebody close to you. Do you doubt? You're not sure how to answer that, are you? 
I'm in church. I've had moments. We've all had moments. I've had prayers. We've all had prayers. I've had hopes in God that seemed to disappoint. I've had questions but no answers. I still do. I've had disappointments and failures on my part and on failures, failures on the part of people that love me and that I love. And it just seems like those failures go without justice sometimes. And why does it seem like God sometimes make it so hard for people to believe in him? I mean, if God is in control, then why did things have to turn out this way? Come on, somebody. If God is in control, if Jesus is alive, why isn't he answering the phone? Right? We all have these questions. If there are miracles, then where are mine? And we'd probably all admit that sometimes it would just be enough if he would just show up and let us know what's going on. Who wouldn't like to know his plan? Who wouldn't like a status update? Who wouldn't like a Facebook account from Jesus that we could just follow and see, oh, that's why that happened. Now I know why Trump, no, I'm not getting political. We're not going there this morning. Who wouldn't like a little reassurance? But then even as I think about that, there's some problems with it, if I'm honest. If we're honest this morning, if we'll be a little bit honest this morning. If that's the way that we think, I wonder how often do, does God need to show up for us to be satisfied? Would God need to show up every day? Would God need to show up every hour? How about just a once a month check-in? Right? Does God need to show up in every area of our life? Or do we like to kind of keep God compartmentalized? Like, you know, this is my life, and then that's the part of my life that I give. How does that work if he's going to be God? Do we just need God when there's an emergency? Whose emergency? Mine? The people around me? The people that I love? Do I need God to just explain things in my life? Or do I think that God maybe owes me an explanation for the things that are going on in other people's lives? And how, how, how do I expect? How do I need God to show up? Am I even looking for God to show up in ways that maybe I don't expect? Or maybe, and this is where I am, and it may not be where you are, but this is where I am. Maybe, am I just disappointed because I wanted everything to go like I thought everything should go? I mean, think about it. If he really is God, if he really is God, if he really is the maker of everything, if he really did figure out the solar system and the ecosystem and rain and the sprinkler controls on my, you know, that you can't figure that. If he really did figure out all of that stuff, do we have the right to demand our own terms or do we kind of have to accept his? And then... We look in the Bible, and there are some people who did have God show up. There are some people who did get answers from Jesus, and it didn't seem to help them. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist saw some amazing things, saw some miracles performed by Jesus. And then John the Baptist gets thrown in jail. And eventually, John the Baptist would be beheaded. But while he's in jail, he, he can't figure out why he's in jail. This isn't the way that things are supposed to go down. I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a Christian. And so he sends some people to ask Jesus, are you really the guy? Or should we expect somebody else? 
because you haven't even been to visit me in jail. I was expecting at least a cake with a file baked on the inside of it. Jesus didn't send him anything. But John's issue wasn't that there wasn't enough evidence for Jesus. John's issue was that he didn't understand why Jesus wouldn't do miracles for him. John believed that Jesus could do miracles, but John didn't understand why there wasn't one being done when he prayed. And so John doubted. Peter, one of the loudest, most uh, outgoing disciples, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, saw this amazingly dramatic scene. He's on a mountain, and it's called the, the, the Transfiguration of Jesus is the name that we give to it in the church world. And Peter witnesses the transfiguration of Jesus. And it's like Jesus is clothed in lightning and he's glowing and like somebody's doing special effects in real life. And Peter looks at that and he's like, whoa, this is amazing. We should take up an offering and build a shrine right here where you are right now. And Jesus says, no, 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 there's more stuff that we got to do. And so they go down the mountain and not too long after that is when Jesus gets arrested. And see, Peter was one of those guys that ran when Jesus got arrested And people looked at Peter and they said, hey, aren't you one of those Jesus followers? And Peter said, no, I don't even know the guy. I'm not one. And he starts cussing like a sailor as though that's going to prove that he doesn't follow Jesus. So John and, and Peter had plenty of evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. But when Jesus didn't do something the way that they thought it should be done, in other words, when following Jesus became confusing to their limited understanding, they unfollowed. And really, isn't that where we find ourselves? It's not that there's not enough evidence. It's that we can't understand the evidence. It's because we can't interpret the circumstances in our life. We have no filter to run the pain and the disappointments that happen in our life through so that we can trust again. And I think if we can relate to the eyewitnesses on the earlier accounts and the earlier ways that they were, I think that we can most relate to the eyewitnesses on this as well. That even if every doubt got erased from our hearts in our darkest moments, in our most hurtful moments, we would still question the existence of a good God. Not because God hasn't given us proof that he is good. Not because God hasn't set off this nagging suspicion in the back of our our minds that he really does exist and that he really loves us. But because we don't understand how our bad circumstances can correspond with a good God. So we lose hope. And it's not really because we don't have enough evidence to believe. It's because we're confused. And confusion is the great obscurer of hope. And so I'd submit to us today that what we need in this world and in our lives and in our day-to-day existence, what we need is not more existence or not more proof in the existence of God. What we need is not more physical evidence or historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I think that what we need is more trust in what God has already said to us. I think that maybe we need to step about three days back before the resurrection and look at Jesus Christ on the cross when he stretched out his arms and he said, I love you this much. And he laid down his life as a covering for our failures and our sins. We need to look at that and say, I can trust someone that loves me that much. Come on, could you clap your hands, everybody, in appreciation for what Jesus has actually done for each and every one of us. 
when we can clearly see his heart, we can trust Jesus again. Even though we may not figure out all the reasons, even though we may not have pat answers and easy answers to hard questions in life, even though sometimes following Jesus may seem to disappoint us, I think if we can trust his heart, then maybe we can trust him again. If we can see his heart, we can trust him again. And this morning, I'm going to give us or take us through one final resurrection account before I let y'all go and steal your kids' chocolate from the Easter egg hunt. But I, I think there's one resurrection account that shows so clearly how confusion can undermine our trust and our hope in God. And it's actually recorded by a first century uh, a doctor named Luke. He was a doctor who turned in uh, to a historian. And Luke was like us. He wasn't Jewish. Luke didn't know Jesus. He wasn't a Jesus follower when Jesus was around. But Luke interviewed all the eyewitnesses, and Luke put, put together all of their accounts, and he put all their stories uh, and cross-checked all of them and put them into a letter and carefully presented them in a letter that he sent to a friend of his named Theophilus. And this is actually the third document in what's, what we call the New Testament, the new part of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and Luke tells us that on Easter Day, all the disciples, are, they're still heartbroken, they still don't really get what's going on. And they, Jesus, you know, they're starting to hear the reports come in that something's happened, but they're, they're not really sure what's happened, and they're still kind of scattered because it's kind of dangerous to get in a big group. We do see them meeting up in a group later on, but it's behind locked doors, and they're kind of keeping it secret. And there's some of their, their, their disciples, Jesus' disciples, that are just, they're going back home. They're leaving Jerusalem because their hero is dead. The guy that they thought was going to restore the kingdom of Israel and make Israel the great nation and overthrow, they followed Jesus because they thought he was going to make Israel great again. I'll just leave that out there for any followers in the political realm. But if his life, if the life of Jesus had been a fanfare of, of miracles and incredible events, then the arrest and the execution of Jesus, had it was a fizzle and he hadn't put up any fight at all. Their hero hadn't fought at all. And so their dreams were crushed. And we, we thought Jesus was going to be different, right? We, even, even his enemies said of Jesus, nobody has ever spoken like this man. Nobody's ever done the things that this man has done. There was something about Jesus, but now Jesus was dead. So two of his followers, and historians think it may be a husband and wife, or they're going back home, and they're just, they're just glad that they didn't get caught up in the, in the arrest in the moment, and they're headed home to a little place called Emmaus. It was about seven miles away, about the distance from here to Krispy Kreme in Vacaville, and don't ask me how I know that, but it's the third day after Jesus had been executed, and the body's supposed to be in the tomb, but they're hearing these conflicting reports that maybe something's happened. They don't know if the Romans did something with it. They don't know if somebody came and stole the body. But really, what did it matter? He was dead. It was over. There would be no victory parade. The revolution would not be televised. It was done, and they were going Back home, and Luke tells us, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. They're walking home, and this dusty desert road, and all of a sudden, there's Jesus beside them with a headband and his Fitbit saying, hey guys, how's it going? 
He's walking along beside them on the road, but because on the road, but because they're confused about how Jesus had allowed things to transpire, they're not even looking for Jesus anymore. They have no expectation of Jesus showing up. They have no expectation of Jesus being with them for the rest of their life. Their confusion had obscured, maybe even stolen their faith. And so he asked them, what are you guys discussing together as you walk along? And I love this detail that Luke records for us. I, I can imagine him interviewing these two people. He says, they stood still and their faces were downcast. And the sad music from Charlie Brown started playing in the background. And I mean, they're just looking at the, they're so dejected. And they're kind of wondering, you know, I don't know how much do I tell this guy? It's kind of dangerous to admit that you're a Jesus follower. And plus he died. So if I admit I was a Jesus follower, I kind of, I'm going to look like a fool to anybody who didn't believe. And so for them, it's over because nothing makes sense. But one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting who does not know, visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these three days or these last days? And Jesus asked them, what things? What things? Anybody ever had that, you know, thing with your parent where your parent asked you, what did you do? And you're scared to answer because you're not sure which thing they're asking you about. That's what's going on here. It's a parent moment. Jesus is basically asking them, what circumstances have stolen your hope in me? What misguided expectations did you have? What were you expecting to go down? That when those things didn't go down, you don't believe in me anymore. What was it exactly that made you unfollow? What was it that has stolen your hope in me? Or are you only here to follow me when things fall into your definition of good? And you can't follow me in the difficult times. What things? What things, Jesus asks. So Cleopas answers, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and in deed. You should have heard the things he said. You should have seen the things that Jesus did. He was so powerful indeed before God before all the people. And then they go on in one of the saddest verses in this story. And they say, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they, everybody say they. They crucified him. And now they're completely apart from the Jesus narrative. This proves they have forgotten everything Jesus told. Listen, these are not skeptics. These were Jesus' followers. These were Jesus' disciples. They knew the story about Jesus walking on water. They knew the story about Jesus calming a storm on the sea and the whole thing just went quiet in an instant. They knew the story about Jesus taking five loaves and two fishes and breaking it and feeding over 5,000 people. They knew the story of Jesus. Maybe they had even been there and seen Jesus call a dead man's name and that dead man came walking out of the tomb. And yet even after believing all that, their problem wasn't a lack of evidence. 
Their problem did not exist outside of themselves. Their problem was the same problem that we all wrestle with. That when we are confused about the way that things have turned out, when we don't understand why God may have allowed things to go down the way that we think God should have made things go down, we start to think that God is not in control. And they don't see Jesus as laying down his own life. They say, no, it was they. They took him. They were stronger than our God. They were stronger than our Messiah. They were stronger than the one that we had placed our trust and our hope in. And can we be honest this morning that really when we doubt God, this is the kind of doubt that we have as well? It's not because there's not enough evidence. It's not because we don't have enough people in our lives that have told us that God is real and that God loves us and that God is for us. The real problem that we all face, if we're honest, is that we have come against some hurt and some pain and some circumstances and we can't figure out why in the world God would let things go down that way. And that is the reason we doubt. That's the reason that a lot of us have unfollowed. And that's the reason that a lot of us aren't really sure if we are still Christians or not. And when clouds of confusion hide the brilliance of Jesus, the radiance of Jesus, we doubt. We doubt. We stop trusting. And we lose hope. Just like Cleopas but we had hoped. In other words, I used to hope. I can't anymore. I used to trust Jesus, but I'm not sure I trust anymore. I used to believe there was something special about Jesus, but I don't believe anymore. We had hoped, but now for us, it's over. We're headed home. We have unfollowed Jesus. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And in addition, some of our women amazed us, and they went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. We're hearing all of these accounts and all of these reports from other people who are testifying and giving us you know, stories in their life that Jesus really is alive again, but we can't really believe it. I'm having a hard time accepting what they're saying because we don't understand how that could be. And so when I hear the evidence in someone else's life, because I don't understand the pain in my life, I doubt the witness of other people around me. Confusion has stolen my hope. And they are talking with the risen Jesus. He's come to where they are. They did not find him. He has found them. In their moment of disillusionment, in their moment of losing hope, when they had lost faith and they were going home, Jesus came to where they were. And aren't you glad it's the same thing with us today, that we don't have to look for him. We can't find him. We can't seem to see him anywhere. But wherever we are, he meets us where we are. Wherever we're living with the pain and the doubts that we have, Jesus comes. He comes to where they are. But because they don't believe, because they don't understand how it all could work out, they lose faith. They lose hope. And we, just like them, confusion fogs 
our faith, and we can't see Jesus. We can't see Jesus. And then you know what it doesn't say next? It doesn't say, so Jesus condemned them to hell and disappeared. It doesn't say, so Jesus abandoned them and he never, we never heard from them again. That's not what it says. But it says that Jesus went on to explain things to them. Jesus uses it as a teaching moment. Okay, guys, you've been with me all this time. You're my disciples, and we've been over this before, but come on, bring it in. We're gonna go over this. Let me tell you one more time. And he says to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. I put people in your life to tell you that you may not always understand the why, but that you can still trust in me. And then he asked them a question that is so powerful. It's so powerful, it speaks to our doubt, and it speaks to when we lose faith. And he asked them, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, now Jesus is inviting them into his wisdom. Didn't it have to happen this way? Didn't I have to go to the cross to take your place? Didn't I have to go to the cross and shed my blood to provide a covering for the failures of your past? Didn't I have to take the full weight and pain of your sin so that you could be excused, so that you could be back at peace with your father, your heavenly father? Why do you think I'm not in control of things just because you don't understand things? And what they did not understand is even in their pain, maybe especially in their darkest moments, they could still trust the heart of Jesus. Didn't it have to happen this way? Didn't it have to happen this way? There was a song by a Christian artist named Rachel Lampa that I found. Uh, it's been years ago now, and she had a line in her song that was so powerful to me. I, I, this, this line, I, I still remember this line. I'm talking like years ago, 15 years ago plus. And she says in one of the lines to her song, I may never know I should just let go. Do I really want a God I can understand. Do you really want a God that's only as smart as you? I don't know about y'all, but I've locked my keys in my car a few times. James twice has locked his keys in his car with the car running. I feel better about myself. Come on. If you dreamed up God, if you made up God, even your made-up version of God, wouldn't he be smarter than you? We do this with our superheroes. Come on, when we dream up superheroes, our superheroes are always a little bit smarter. Our superheroes are always a little bit stronger. Our superheroes are always one or two steps ahead of evil. How much more with our God? Do we really want a God that we can always understand, that we can always figure out? Or isn't it so much better that he is so much smarter than you and me? And even in moments of pain that I can lean back and rest my life in the everlasting arms of a good, good father. Didn't it have to be this way? Come on, don't we have to come to the end of ourselves before we ask for help? 
Don't we have to get into circumstances that we can't figure out before we ask for help? Don't we have to face things that are too big for us before we will ask for help? Isn't it in those times that we start making those deals with God? You guys know what I'm talking about? Oh God, if you will, I promise I will. Oh God, if you will, I promise I will never. God, if you will, I promise I'll start next week. We do this. All of us do this. You're laughing because it's true. It reminds me of the story of the guy went to the mall. It's Christmas time. 15 minutes driving around. Cannot find a parking space at the mall. I mean, it is just jam-packed. Finally, this guy driving around after 15 minutes says, God, if you will give me a parking space, I will go to Christmas service with my wife this Sunday. He's driving down the aisle, and right there, while he says it, as he says it, at the very front, I'm talking closest to the doors, primo spot, there's no blue placard. Oh, I'm talking like you park and do a victory dance. Like, that's just, just right there in front, the car pulls out and drives away, and he's going to get that spot. He looks, and he looks up, and he says, never mind, I found one. Don't we all do that to God? Isn't it in those moments when we are at the end of our, if we could figure everything out on our own, you would never look God's way. If you could handle it on your own, you would never bow a knee in prayer. If you could figure it out and resource it on your own and never run out of resources, you would never think about God. If you were so strong, you never experienced weakness, you would never ask for his strength. If you were so morally good that you had no blind spots, you would never need his forgiveness. But didn't it have to happen this way? Isn't God still in control? Isn't he so much smarter and wiser? than we are you can hope again you can trust in him again you don't have to figure it out for yourself and what Easter says to each and every one of us is that even in our pain and in our darkest moments we don't have to walk away from God but we can trust in a God that is eternal we can trust in a God that created the world and created you and me I mean, every, every parent, every parent in this room knows what I'm talking about. Every one of us that have had to take our kids in for shots, we know that sometimes pain has to happen for something good to take place. Every parent in the room knows that your kids don't need to understand everything in order for it to be good for them. How much more the gap between us and God. You can trust him. You can trust him can trust him. Come on, can we pause right here? I feel a Jesus moment. Come on, just pause. Would you close your eyes all over the room? Come on, just, just acknowledge him. Jesus, help me trust. Help me trust. Help me hope in you again, Jesus. Eventually, they get home and they invite Jesus in. He comes in. He's been talking to him the whole time. He's been explaining things. And as Jesus is talking with them, they're starting to hope again. They're starting to believe. Maybe it was. And they still don't recognize it's Jesus. 
And they get home and they invite him in. And when he's at the table with them, he takes bread and he gives thanks. And he, he breaks the bread because Jesus always did this thing where he's breaking bread and feeding people. I mean, everybody likes the guy that gives out free food. That's why we're giving free candy to your kids. We want your kids to bug you next week to come back to church. Can we go to the chocolate church? That's our new tagline. We are the chocolate church. He breaks bread and he gives it to them. And their eyes, their eyes open. By now, they're, they're starting to think, man, maybe we can believe it. Maybe, maybe we did get it wrong. You know, we doubted because we couldn't figure it out, but you know what, maybe it's just because we, we didn't know everything. Maybe it's because we have limited knowledge of the future. Maybe no knowledge of the future. Maybe it's because we didn't really understand what had to happen, but now that he's saying it like this, now that he's telling me this, I can see, I think it had to happen this way. The daring to hope again, and their eyes are open, and they see Jesus in that all-so-familiar posture. Feeding them, feeding them, feeding them. And they recognized Jesus. They saw the risen Jesus. And they believed again. And Easter makes faith in Jesus possible. And Easter is the best day for you to come back to church if you've been doubting. Today's the best day for you to maybe plug back in to following Jesus, to leave behind your worries and your disillusionments, your disappointments, to just, I'm not telling you you're going to figure everything out. In fact, I'm pretty sure you're not. I know that there are questions you have. I'd have no words for you. I'd have no hope, I mean, no comfort for you, rather, outside of Jesus himself. Like, you just got to trust Jesus, the best thing for you to hear today is the Easter story because if you do have doubts, I think you can see yourself in these stories. Can I hear an amen from anybody? I think we can see ourselves in this. That we, we had hoped, but now that we can't see the why, we don't hope anymore. But then those people that had run away after they saw him, everything changed. Everything changed. The people that had run away and deserted Jesus went back into that street just days after this event. While everybody was still alive, while everybody still knew what had happened in the the previous few days, these people went back out and found faith again because of what they had seen. And they began to boldly declare to everybody that Jesus is in fact alive. And our sins have killed him, but God has raised him. And we've seen him. And you can hope again. You can hope again. Easter assures us that we can hope again. We can hope again. Can we all stand in this room this morning? What is it in your life that's confused you? What seems so impossible and so improbable what seems just like there's no rhyme or reason to it and maybe it's made you doubt that God is really listening that God sees you that God answers prayer what is it what is it can we do that song I know I may have switched on y'all can we do Jesus I need you I apologize y'all switch for me that's my fault 
What situation in your life seems like it's over? What thing in your life makes you want to quit and go home and not really plug into Jesus? Honestly, didn't it have to happen this way? Didn't it have to happen that way for you to even look at him, to think about him, to consider him again? Doesn't it have to happen this way? Can we all bow our heads and close our eyes here at the end of service today? My prayer has been over these last few days, this last couple of weeks, that here in this place, in these moments right now, where maybe, I'm hoping, I'm praying that you feel a little closer to Jesus. Maybe this Easter, you're here so that Jesus can speak and tell you to hope again. Maybe in this service, you might feel a pull to invite him into where you live. To maybe pray that prayer again, but this time, leaving your expectations open to a miracle. This time, leaving your expectations open to an answer that doesn't look like the answer you thought should come. Maybe today is the day when you'll just decide to walk with him for a little while. Listen to his voice a little bit more. In this place, in these moments where we can feel his nearness in this room, maybe you will look for Jesus where you have stopped expecting to see him. If that's you this morning, would you do this while every head's still bowed and every eye's still closed? Come on, could you lift your hand? saying, maybe today's the day that I begin to hope again. I see your hands going up. God bless you. God bless you. I see it all over this room. Mm, Jesus, today we would hope again. God bless you.